diagnosis is not easy and that it's not surprising that I have some diagnostic uncertainty, so do my colleagues. Hello and welcome to the Medical Protection Podcast, our headliner series, where we keep you up to date with the latest in research and news. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Priestley, and today I'm joined once more by Associate Professor Carmel Crock. Carmel, thanks so much for being here again. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having us again, Stephen. In our last podcast, we discussed what things we can do in our practices to create a safety culture around diagnosis, what we're calling a diagnostic safety culture, which is akin to the strategies we use around procedural safety or medication safety. It's a matter of thinking of diagnosis in a similar way, so as a major patient safety risk. Today, I'd like to explore what we as clinicians should do when we encounter diagnostic uncertainty, when we're not sure of what the diagnosis is. From the clinician's perspective, diagnostic uncertainty has been defined as the subjective perception of an inability to provide an accurate explanation of the patient's health problem. It's always intrigued me that the more we learn and understand about diagnosis and diagnostic error, and in fact, you know, take on real efforts to minimize diagnostic errors, this development of a greater understanding or awareness of just how challenging it can be to make an accurate diagnosis and all the pitfalls there are in diagnosis making, and particularly in our world of emergency medicine, when we're often just meeting a patient for the first time and can have precious little information to go on with. I feel as if personally in my own practice, I'm in fact more and more hesitant to actually make a diagnosis. I've always wanted a diagnostic code in my computer system of not yet diagnosed. I want that to be available to me when I'm discharging or handing over a patient rather than being forced at times to actually provide a diagnosis. And of course, this isn't confined to emergency medicine at all. Making a diagnosis can be really tough in all types of practice. So I'm interested to see that you have published on diagnostic uncertainty, and in particular, how to tolerate uncertainty and how to communicate that uncertainty to a patient. So Carmel, my question to you is, How do you talk to patients about uncertainty in their diagnosis? Won't they think you're not a good doctor if you can't give them an answer? Look, Stephen, I think the reality is we can't always give patients an answer. And I think patients want to know that you're genuinely interested in them, that you're genuinely thinking about their problem and trying to solve it. And I think some of this requires a bit of a mindset shift in medicine, both from a clinician perspective and a patient perspective, actually, because I think that um, uncertainty is absolutely inherent within medicine and within the diagnostic process. And I think we we haven't really acknowledged that. And I think that that we should. I think that patients want judicious medicine. They want careful testing only when it's required. Patients are happy for the test of time when it's safe. They want serious diagnoses ruled out, but they're often, you know, often you'll say to a patient, you know, I I think I better, you know, do a lumbar puncture or get a CT and they'll say, no, 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 look, it's, it's really minor or mild. So I think diagnosis is a real negotiation between 
patients and and clinicians and it's a conversation and uh, you mentioned that we've done some work so I've done some work with a linguist Mary Darm uh, who is absolutely brilliant and dedicated to this area of communicating uncertain uncertainty in medicine and analyzing how we speak with patients and how we do safely communicate uncertainty. What did uh, what what's Mary's take on that? Uh, look, I think her take uh, is that uncertainty causes a lot of anxiety uh, from a patient perspective and a clinician perspective, and that we need to acknowledge that it's there, um, that that actually, you know, clinicians are much more likely to burn out if they're pretending that they're decisive and confident and they know what's going on when they're not. Um, uncertainty, Mary's take is that it pervades the entire diagnostic process, that patients have a lot of uncertainty. You know, should is this symptom something or nothing? Do I go today? Do I leave it? Uh, you know, am I being neurotic? Um, so, you know, patients are, are uncertain about when to present and, and what their symptoms mean, even which symptoms to talk about. You know, you'll often come in with four or five symptoms, which is the most important one. You know, again, it's a negotiation between the clinician's knowledge and the patient's you know, um, detailed knowledge of their own body. It's, in, it's interesting. I, I'm just reflecting on my own practice. You know, many times I've had a patient with in my emergency department with chest pain, you know, and so the presenting complaint of chest pain, of course, triggers in a clinician a whole lot of scenarios and things that need to be considered and ruled out. And that can take quite some time. And I've had many situations when I've done all those things and ECGs and troponins and chest x-rays and whatever it might be, you know, and some four, five, six hours later, I'll come back to the patient and say, listen, I, I, I haven't really put my finger on exactly what it is. But what I'm comfortable to say to you and what I'm confident is that I've been able to rule out things that are very serious, that require a stay in hospital or specific treatment. Um, but I just I haven't got exactly what it is. And then I think you're right. It's a, a bit of a negotiation with the patient. And oftentimes the patient will say, that's fine, doc. I just wanted to know that I wasn't having a heart attack. And that's, that's all right. they're that's interested right. in, you know. Yeah. And in that conversation, um, I'm usually then saying uh, it's not to say that uh, we're not going to continue to monitor this or look into it. I'm going to liaise with your general practitioner, and and here's a number of thing reasons why I would want you to come back to see me again at any time. And I'm getting better and better at doing that, rather than jumping to a diagnosis for the sake of jumping to a diagnosis, I must say, because there are some really devastating consequences of making a wrong diagnosis, of providing a patient with a diagnosis where you've really got insufficient evidence to support that diagnosis, and furthermore, then having it recorded in the medical record for the next clinician to see them, and they end up with a sort of a downstream bias of, of, well, this patient had gastritis, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to go along that line. I mean, what are some of the consequences of, of making a wrong diagnosis? Yeah, so it, it really varies a lot, um, Stephen, as, as you'd be aware that, you know, 
often we make a wrong diagnosis and there's there's no harm at all. The patient just gets better. We might have called it one thing and it's something else, but but with the um, passage of time, they improve. Um, but some of the negative consequences of, of a diagnostic error are things like a patient losing faith in the medical system, you know, perhaps feeling that they weren't heard by us, um, Worst case scenario, of course, is is that um, errors in diagnosis can be can be quite devastating and lead to permanent permanent harm and disability. So, you know, as, as I mentioned in the last podcast, it's something that that we want to want to prevent um, as much as we can. I wanted to go back to a point you made about you know that you sometimes wanting to avoid making a diagnosis. I think we've historically almost seen diagnosis just as a label and as something that we place, you know, give a name to something, place it on a patient. And I'm hoping that we're moving now more towards seeing diagnosis as a process, as something that evolves over time. And that actually, um, Jerome Cassirer says, you know, a diagnosis is a hypothesis about the nature of a patient's illness. So trying to regard it more as a hypothesis and a process which evolves and my thinking might need to change and might need to evolve. And having this sort of a mindset Remove some of the fear of making an error because you're always keeping an open mind. You're always sharing your thoughts with patients and with other clinicians. And I think this is where the field of diagnosis needs to, mm. needs to move towards. And it's really comes down to being honest and open and acknowledging that often there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, Mary and I, in the, in the paper that we did write together, actually put forward that that one of the causes of diagnostic error is actually failure to acknowledge uncertainty or to communicate uncertainty explicitly. So trying to bring this, um, the conversations to, um, to uncertainty in medicine. Yes, that's interesting. Um, the f failure to understand there's uncertainty. There are pressures, of course, to actually make a diagnosis and, and mm. they don't only just come from patients. Certainly, uh, what we do see and what I often see in my practice is, is it comes from colleagues, this pressure to place a label. You know, we've yeah. had situations of referring patients from the emergency department to uh, an inpatient or a hospital service, and they're very reluctant and, in fact, sometimes refuse to accept a patient without a diagnosis. Uh, you know, and I think that places pressure on uh, particularly junior clinicians who perhaps uh, are not able to assert themselves or then really question their abilities if they're still uncertain, they'll actually end up placing a diagnosis simply to get the patient into the ward. And, and I sometimes see that at handovers as well. So if you're handing over a patient from one team to another, or it could be from one GP um, to another GP, the it's nicer to have a diagnosis to go on with because rather than uh, oh it's still that seventy year old lady with dizziness um, no I'm not, I know I've been looking after her for a few weeks or a few hours depending on whether it's a practice or an emergency department um, I still don't know what it is and then of course she returns the following week and is sometimes seen by another doctor in the same practice and rather than inheriting a patient with a a diagnosis of postural dizziness from antihypertensive. They've got dizziness for investigation. It takes a lot more work, doesn't it, to actually go from, from that basis. But I sometimes think that 
we we make a diagnosis in order to tie things off and to reduce the load on the subsequent practitioner. And, and certainly this, the, the practitioner who's then accepting the care, I've certainly heard some fairly disparaging comments come back at the original doctor about, well, you know, you have been looking after them for a while. Why haven't you made a diagnosis? So there's a tendency sometimes to, to jump to something just to avoid that, what can be a, sometimes an unpleasant interaction. I think that's very dangerous. How, how do you deal with that when, um, you know, there might be colleagues who are asserting themselves and saying, well, actually, I'm not going to look after them unless you've got a diagnosis? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Steve, you may raise a really great point. It, it kind of actually brings up the topic of civility in medicine and how we speak to each other in general. Um, one of my colleagues said that when you're referring a patient to somebody else, you should use the technique of breaking bad news when you want them to accept a patient. It seems quite an extreme to have to go to. I'm not sure that I, I quite see it like that. Um, I try to model myself a little bit on one of our nurses who, when she takes a phone call and takes a referral to our ED, she answers the phone by saying her name, hello, this is Ivy, how can I help you? So I think reimagining some of the way that we work together from, from when we're, we're the referrer and from when we're the receiver, because it's always about how can I help you? If somebody's referring you a patient, there's something that they're unsure of or that they need help with. So maybe if I'm the person referring, I should be saying, could you help me with this case? Maybe it's around the language we use when we're asking for somebody else to accept a patient. You made the other really great point around the cognitive load. So we reduce our cognitive load by just slapping a label on, on, a, on a patient. And I don't think that that's always the right thing to do. I think that um, we should always have a differential diagnosis in our mind, or we should try and practice having a differential di diagnosis as much as we can. I, um, I know I mentioned this to you when we were speaking before, Stephen, but I had a case myself in the last few weeks where I saw a patient with an earache and, uh, you know, I had some diagnostic uncertainty. I thought it was probably acute otitis media, but I wasn't sure. And I thought, look, I'm senior, you know, What's my colleagues going to think of me if I ask my ENT surgeon what they think? But I, I, I decided I would and I called in a colleague and she had a look and then said to me, you know, Carmel, the diagnostic accuracy for acute otitis media is 50% by a generalist and it's about 70% by an ENT specialist. And I felt reassured first that I'd asked her to come and see the patient and you know, to me, it's important whether or not I am I or am I not going to give antibiotics because the patient might have a reaction to them. So I, I want to be as accurate as I can. But but I was reassured that that uh, diagnosis is not easy and that it, it's not surprising that I have some diagnostic uncertainty. So do my colleagues. Yeah, that's right. As I said right at the outset, I, I find myself being more and more hesitant to actually make a diagnosis because as I learn more and more about the misdiagnosis that I've had and the complexities of it, it might be making me an unpopular clinician in the department, of course, that, that or you're going to want to take a handover from Stephen because he's never got a diagnosis. <laughs> so I've got to I'm I've sure got to manage, that's not the case. 
I've got to manage that carefully. Um, Carmel, you brought up differential diagnosis, and um, I must say that I, I see uh, differential diagnosis uh, is rarely provided by um, many of the doctors that I work with in the emergency department. And, and part of it, I think, relates to the computer systems that we use, the electronic health records and, and the like, that only have a slot in the computer for the diagnosis rather than another field that says, and what might be other possibilities? Do you think that actually uh, teaching and and making sure that differential diagnoses are written down, are recorded somewhere and discussed in a handover can, can help? Look, I think the way we've done it in our department is we do it at the morning handover so that at one point of the day, we're regularly discussing a number of differential diagnoses for every patient. The electronic medical record is a bit of a problem, as you point out. Um, I think as clinicians, we probably should try and discipline ourselves. Look, you know, some things are very straightforward, you know, perhaps like a forearm fracture or, you know, certain conditions you may not need a lengthy differential for. But I think once you lose the habit of trying to write you know, that down, chest pain in a 70-year-old, consider or excluded this, this and this. I think that's when we start to uh, miss important diagnoses. Yeah. If the diagnosis is not in your differential diagnosis list, it won't be in your final diagnosis. I think Gloria Kuhn, an American, said that once, very basic but profound statement. <laughs> that's, that's, that's absolutely right. Um so we talked in our earlier podcast about establishing a safety culture around mm. diagnosis and making diagnoses. How, do, how does diagnosis, diagnostic uncertainty sit within a diagnostic safety culture, do you think? So I think it's really central to a diagnostic safety culture. I think it's uh, about uh, acknowledging uncertainties about being open and honest, about being open to new possibilities and being flexible in your thinking. Um, and that thing that I mentioned before, that when information changes, you will actually change course. You won't be stuck in one way. Um, so I think, you know, planning for diagnostic uncertainty, creating it systems that make it difficult to make a mistake, to make a big diagnostic error, um, I think that that's really core to a diagnostic safety culture. So to me, and we didn't really um, talk about this in the first uh, episode at all, Stephen, but to me, it's around designing interventions for diagnostic safety. So just like for, you know, for example, our results checking, you'd have, you know, great interventions um, set up of a person or two people checking results, phoning patients, et cetera designing interventions and the one intervention is around designing for diagnostic uncertainty we know we're going to be unsure quite a bit of the time so what do we do about that do we phone a patient uh, the next day do we write to the gp do we uh, book them into a clinic within 48 hours you know so design for design to protect against safety net for for diagnostic uncertainty yeah, that's they're great suggestions, actually, and I, I'm interested in in what what your practical tips or advice might be in relation to our listeners. Um, 
how do people learn to tolerate diagnostic uncertainty in their practice when there are many pressures to actually appear to be confident and decisive and make a diagnosis? And obviously from there, how, how might people start to practice or learn how to communicate diagnostic uncertainty effectively to patients and, and to their colleagues? You know, is there anything that we can do or that our listeners can do? What can, we, what can they practice to get better at this? The first thing I imagine is just acknowledging that they will always, there will be uncertainty and, and how, to, how to live with it and sit with it and then and not be afraid of it. So I've got two two things to say on that. I think if one is a senior clinician, I think it's really helpful in your practice to model uncertainty to your juniors. In our department, that's what I found really powerful when one of our consultants at the morning handover will say, look, I, I'm not really sure about that. It could be this, it could be that. Um, let's bring them back this morning and have another look. Uh, so modelling your own uncertainty is 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 a great way for seniors to start because you give permission to the more junior clinicians and you also have students, the nurses, medical students listening and they're sort of thinking, gosh, if he doesn't know, if she doesn't know and they're really senior, you know, it's not surprising and I can verbalise that I don't know as well. So I think modelling it is one. The other thing, this business about confidence and being confident or not, or not, when you described before what you say to a patient, it sounded to me like you can describe that you're quite confident that it's not a heart attack, that it's not an aortic dissection, but you can't tell them exactly what it is. So I think we can kind of mix this, you know, um, honest confidence with where we are uncertain. That that would be a couple of my suggestions. But it sounds yeah, like you I, do it very well, Steve. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's that's actually respectful to a patient, um, uh, and then inviting the. I'll often invite the patient to, you know, in, ask me some questions, obviously, mm -hmm. about that, um, and then we'll come up with an agreed plan for pain relief or whatever it might be. I'll always mention the red flag symptoms that I want to see them again. But many things do settle with time. And if you put a mechanism for review in place, I guess that's the first thing to when you're uncertain about a diagnosis, you just can't cast people off. There needs to be some sort of review mechanism, whether that's at back at your practice or somewhere else. And the patient can be the driver um, of that if you empower them to do that. So listen, thank you so much, Carmel. To, um, do you have any closing comments around this, this issue of diagnostic uncertainty that we, we all grapple with? Look, I think just to close, we haven't talked much about listening and how we listen, but I think, you know, um, Danielle Offrey says that for all our, you know, sort of sophisticated diagnostic tool, uh, diagnosis is a conversation between a patient and and a clinician. And so I think, um, you know, never being dismissive of a patient, patients um, feeling that they're being heard, um, I think that's really crucial to excellence in diagnosis. I agree with you there, Carmel, absolutely. Listen, thank you again um, for joining us and uh, and lending your expertise to 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 diagnosis and on this occasion diagnostic uncertainty. Uh, thank you very very much again. That's a pleasure. It's been a delight to talk with you, Steve. Thanks. 
And with that, we reach the end of today's podcast on diagnostic uncertainty. For further information about today's podcast, and if you're a member of Medical Protection and would like a certificate for listening, please take a look in the podcast description. Remember to subscribe to the channel to make listening easier in the future. By paying attention to the way we go about making diagnoses, we can begin to reduce the times our patients experience harm from an incorrect diagnosis. I've been your host, Stephen Priestley. Thank you for listening.